0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, Brother Death makes a bad move. The UN of Earth finds out resistance is brutal when they try to force a non-compliant star system back into the collective. A journey to an alternate history set to the music of time and to save a galaxy, a hero must rise again and again. All that, plus we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Consulting Editor David Afshari Rod sitting in for Tony Daniel. Today, I'll be talking to Mark Miller about his new novel, Agent of the Imperium. It's out now in trade paperback and ebook formats. This is an expanded edition of the novel, the original of which was nominated for a Dragon Award. The novel's set in the Traveler universe, so fans of that seminal role-playing game are in for a treat. But if you've never played Traveler, or any RPG for that matter, the book is also very much for you. But first, the news. This December, Bain has three mass market paperbacks hitting bookstore shelves everywhere. First up, Monster Hunter Guardian by Larry Korea and Sarah A. Hoyt. While the Monster Hunter International crew are called away on a rescue mission, Julie Shackelford is left behind to hold down the fort and care for her newborn son. Julie's devoted to the little guy, but the slow pace of maternity leave is getting to her but when a field call brings her face to face with an unspeakable evil, she'll get more excitement than she ever hoped for. Next up, Freehold Resistance, edited by Michael Z. Williamson. When the UN invaded the freehold of grain, the intent was simple, force a non-compliant star nation back into the collective, the politicians hadn't accounted for was that the Freehold had spent 200 years as the haven for every independent, rebellious, self-reliant adventurer in human space. Grains inhabitants have only one goal in mind, make the invaders suffer for their presumption. And 1636, The Flight of the Nightingale, by David Carrico. Two novels set in Eric Flint's best-selling Ring of Fire series, Shine a Light, on the overlooked corners of the Ring of Fire universe, where small actions can have life-altering consequences, includes the two complete novels, The Flight of the Nightingale, and Bach to the Future. And now my interview with Mark Miller about his new novel, Agent of the Imperium. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Mark Miller, author of Agent of the Imperium. Uh, Mark started out as a classically trained science fiction reader. I think many of us did, or uh, at least some of us uh, raised on Campbell's astounding and analog, reading all the great Smith, Heinlein, Asimov, Clark, Norton, and all the rest. Uh, He became an award-winning game designer with more than 70 titles across historical and science fiction genres and was recognized with multiple awards for game design excellence. His military and science fiction experiences shaped the Traveler universe, which we'll be talking about today, uh, which he created for role-playing gamers. And now he chronicles that universe in the traditional form that influenced him. He lives in Bloomington, Illinois with his wife Darlene, and this is his first novel. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the Bain Free Radio Hour to talk about Agent of the Imperium.
2: Thanks. Um... That's a great blurb.
1: <laughs> no, um,
2: let me start out. Classic science fiction reader. Um, I grew up in the sixties. Um, I went to college in downtown Chicago and I took the train in every day, a commuter to university of Illinois. Mm-hmm. And on the way back home every day, I would stop in this little bodega on the skid row and for some reason, they had a box of cover script, analog and astounding. And remember, this is 1966. So they had copies back to the 90s, to the 40s. Mm-hmm. I'd buy one every day for a quarter and read it on the train on the way home and then throw it away. And at the end of a year of college, I not only had learned all the basic things I'm supposed to learn and, uh, in college, but I had read most of Astounding Magazine uh, cover to cover. That was fun.
1: Yeah, uh, it was I read fun.
2: And then I think
1: you couldn't ask for a better education in science fiction uh, you know, than doing exactly. that.
2: Exactly, and, and unfortunately today, there are a lot of people who have not read those classics or they've read the ones that have emerged. They've read Dune, they've read um, those things, at a uh, foundation, maybe, but uh, they haven't read all the short stories that were sprinkled around the edges. They haven't read all those concepts of uh, psionics from uh, various, well, whatever Campbell loved at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was strongly influenced by Campbell because he had picked all those stories and I got to read them.
1: Yeah, I, um, not to, this is your interview and I'll talk about myself. I. Um... Kind of came to the genre through I kind of maybe an anomaly for my age in that I came through it through short stories and specifically those old stories not through back issues of analog but um, through a lot of I for whatever reason the library had um, a lot of older anthologies edited by like Groff Conklin and people like that yeah, and so you know I Frederick Brown and Heinlein and Bradbury and all those guys that's how I came to the genre, too, and I'm uh, always pleased when I find somebody, uh, you know, in my generation or younger who has that experience, but uh, as you said, unfortunately, I think uh, that's not uh, read as much as it uh, could or should be. I don't want to say should be, but I think there's a lot of joy and um, a lot of great, um, how how you want to say, background or whatever, that can still be found in those Classics those foundational works. I think is the way to put
2: it so. You know, the other thing that I notice is that when I look back at them. I read for a plot. I mean uh, That's what you get if you're reading Astounding cover to cover in an hour and a half, you know, I read for its plot. I was not a, a character um, oriented reader um, I look back now at what the science fiction of the 50s was and how greatly influenced it was by the Red Scare and the Yellow Menace and, and all of the details of this wonderful 1950s that we look back supposedly so fondly at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't see any of it. I didn't see it. I just read for plot. And now I look back and I can see how deeply those writers were influenced by the world situation and by the society they lived in. Um, I try to see where Modern writing is the same way. Of course, it's the same way. We are deeply influenced science fiction, as much as it looks to the future is, reflects what modern society is. Uh, But I I found it interesting that when I looked back at what I'd read and when I look at it again, I just am amazed at how much it reflects the society we were in. Uh, uh, Foundation is the example. Foundation has no aliens. And uh, for the most part, it has no diversity in it at all. It's white men and women in a galaxy-wide civilization. There are no social problems in foundation at all, except that the empire is going to crash and and have to be reborn. Um, That's such a 40s or 50s concept. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm always, th- you know, Tony Daniel, who is sort of the the originator of this podcast, and he's a Bane editor, he was a teacher of mine, and he always talked about this, that, like, science fiction is about the time in which it was written, you know, more than it's about the future, and it's sort of, you know, I think people who don't, aren't familiar with the genre, they always want to, like, play the game of, like, look how wrong they got, or look how right they got. It, it's not about pro- prognosticating, although... You know, I read Bradbury, I love Bradbury, you know, and some of his predictions, Fahrenheit 451, and there's a story called The Murderer. I'm like, is, was this written about Facebook? Like, I, you know, or about our <laughs> cell phones, you know? It's kind of, you know, so. No, you
2: know, that's another aspect of it that I always found Bradbury difficult to take because I was very literal.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I remember Golden Apples of the Sun, and he, he wrote it in a, they can't just go and take a scoop out of the sun. You know? yeah. I mean, where does he get his science? And yeah. that's, that's like a 15-year-old boy reading it for science fiction. And I just could not understand yeah. It's Only later that I could understand how metaphorical he was. Yeah. Uh, but that's, uh, again, I'm a classically trained science fiction reader. That means that I made some mistakes along the way.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about Agent of the Epirium. Um the, the main par- character in the book is uh, a man named Jonathan Bland, who uh, is an agent in, of the quarantine. He's a decider in the Third Imperium. Uh, but really, aside from a couple sections very early on, he is in a way, he's dead for the entire book. Um, so can you talk about uh, what that means and how the wafers work and what a decider is and uh, just sort of set no, up because,
2: the background. Because, uh, well, at the time I wrote this, I had just finished the massive project of, of the latest edition of the Traveler role-playing game. And if this were just role-playing science fiction, it wouldn't be worthy of you reading it. Because if it were just stories about my campaigns and how my characters played, that, that's very uh, self-serving. And that's not what this is about. But I had immersed myself in the rules for this massive science fiction role-playing game. And by the way, let's go step back, Dungeons and Dragons in Space, without fantasy monsters. That's what this is, it's a way of playing at all of these science fiction stories that we read and adding your own take to them. So this character, Jonathan Bland is just a bureaucrat. There is a technology in this science fiction structure where they can harvest your brain your personality and put it on a chip. Now there's, there's two levels of that technology. One, they can do that for your skills, your piloting skill or your accounting skill or whatever it is. And other people can use it to do their work. Um, Pretty, pretty easily understood process. Um, Everybody can do it. You put the chip in, you know accounting. You take it out, you don't know accounting anymore. The store, the structure is that, that you can't do it forever. You can't just leave it in, it'll drive you crazy. So people do it by short measures or whatever, or in emergencies. That's that whole process. There's a separate technology that will take the whole brain, the whole personality. And when they put that into your chip slot, that personality would take over for about 30 days. The original person goes away and Jonathan Bland's personality appears and he runs the show. That's a dead end technology. It um, requires that you kill the person that you're taking the the personality from. Um, For a variety of reasons, it's expensive and it's not worthwhile, but it does let us put an expert in some process in place uh, in a host. It lasts for 30 days. That's the basic setup. The empire has decided, oh, so then the other big backstory is, you know, the universe is filled with a lot of really scary threats of plagues and diseases and uh, aliens and mind control monsters and everything else. Over time, uh, the empire, and we're talking an Asimovian sort of foundation empire, um, although diverse. Why I'm getting into detail here, <laughs> No, me. this is great. <laughs> um, and over time, the empire has been there for thousands of years. They have, in order to meet these problems, have established the quarantine, which will Quarantine worlds or scrub them. You know, I was inspired by a scene from *Starhammer* by uh, I know his name, Michael uh, uh, Christopher Raleigh. Um, And he did a nice the bang. The um, he has uh, an uh, an all parasitic menace that takes over uh, people, worlds, any biologies. It's, It's really a great series. I was inspired at one point that the parasite, the intelligent parasite has almost succeeded in taking over this world when their empire shows up, their brutal empire shows up with a fleet and scrubs the world. And I was inspired by that. One of the things I wanted to know was what is the process of scrubbing a world uh, of some mass? And so I took that concept and assumed that that's possible in this empire And there has to be some process. The process is that some people are empowered to do that. That's the quarantine. They have officers on most ships. They're in charge if they need to be. But it takes a lot of money. It takes a high budget to do it. And the empire has decided that rather than build a whole new fleet of quarantine ships, they'll just harvest some experts, put them on ships, and put them on the ships. And when they need to, they'll activate an expert who will take charge and tell people what to do. And if the emperor says, you will leave, do what this guy says, then I suppose they will. So that's the basic setup. Uh, I did some other things. The chip holding this guy's brain, this guy's personality, it lasts for 30, 30 days. And then it dissipates. It evaporates. The guy is no longer there. The original personality comes back. You can't do it again. Arbitrary restriction I put in there. And just because I didn't want to get into it. You can't put a man chip in a woman's body or a woman chip in a man's body. I didn't want to address that. (laughs) I think that would distract us greatly because of the confusion. So uh, That's the basic setup. That's the basic concept. And now we're following the story of Jonathan Bland. He's one of these people. He's empowered by the empire to decide when they need to. And uh, he has to make a lot of decisions. And then we have a nice tour because he shows up for 30 days and disappears. Um, oh, there are hundreds of copies of this chip. He's on most big ships in the empire. He could be present in two different places. helps him continuity. I said that the chip records his uh, memories as well. And so when he's done with the 30 days, you put the chip back in the rack, and the next time you use it, he remembers what happened last time. So there we go. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I was gonna ask about the skill wafers, but you touched on that. Um, To me, we can, well, I wanna get into that a little later, some of the bigger themes, but the thing that struck me was, you know, like you say, he's a bureaucrat, that this sort of, Bureaucrat sounds maybe boring, but it's not a boring book by any means, but it sort of touches on, you know, you see, you know, the obvious example is Star Wars, you know, Um, and I remember Kevin Anderson talking about why he liked Dune so much and saying, you know, in the line in Dune when they say, you know, this is going to cost spice profits for whatever hundred years or whatever the line is. And he thought like, no one in Star Wars, I'm not dogging on Star Wars but you know how did they afford to build that death star you know they never touch on that and i like this book in that it was sort of like how what is the nitty gritty um although again it's sort of exciting but it's sort of cold in that like how do you keep a star empire together and um and and i, and I do want to talk about some of the kind of the theme of uh you know, sacrificing some for the greater of the whole and all this uh, a little bit later. But that was what was interesting to me is that this is sort of a um, a very uh, rational look at, you know, this kind of what we think of as this big space opera, uh, you know. What, yeah, how how does you?
2: a big space opera afford to have a big fleet? Where does yeah. that money come from, right. who, who authorizes it, and how much leeway do you have on this? Mm. Um, yeah, that's an offshoot of role playing. You know, if I'm just if someone's just writing a story, they don't have to worry about who pays the costs for making this happen. It's a hand wave. But in in role playing, we have people who play and they want, how much does this ship cost? Can I make a bigger ship? Can I make a bigger driver? Can I make a better turret on my ship? Can I improve it? Can I upgun it? How much money do I have? Where does it come from? Are there taxes? And so that's the budgeting question. I lost my train of thought.
1: No, no, yeah, we were just talking about how, you know, because of it comes from a role-playing uh background world building. Um you you in a story you don't necessarily need that, but in a game you do. And so but I think that made, you know, oh actually I have a let me see, what did I say? Um what was that? Uh Oh, that was something else. But yeah, how you had all this world sort of from the game that you could port over. um, And so that made it to me, just a really rich because again, because of those things that you need in a role playing game that you don't always need in a novel, but when you have it in a novel, it can really um, give a a feeling of a real world to it.
2: Um, And you know, uh, I don't mean to compare myself you know, in any real way, to Dune or to Lord of the Rings, but those are well fleshed-out societies. Mm-hmm. Um, the author has put a lot of work into that, uh, and we love them for that. We feel like it's not just jumping from episode to episode, and who knows what's going on, or there's no coherent whole. We feel like uh, Herbert created Dune as a universe first, and then wrote a story within it probably isn't quite true, but we like to think that. Um, In this case, this universe has been in place for the Traveler universe for 40 years uh, with a lot of people playing it. And uh, I call it playtesting it. They point out, what's this, how does this work? Or you can't do that, or what about this? And so we make adjustments and the rules cover them. And then as I write the novel in the universe, I'm constrained by that structure, rather than just, oh, I'll just do this. Mm -hmm. You know, I found it interesting, I write rules for the game, and that's fun. And we can set up structures, when I write fiction in it, I start to see how those rules come together, and how we have other structures that arise from the rules. Uh, For example, I have something called a clipper service. We have ways of moving from world to world, and it takes a certain amount of time. It takes a week to get from here to there. It takes several weeks, a sequence of weeks, to get greater distances. Um, And we had to structure, I, I came up with something called the Clipper Service, which tries to abbreviate that time. It works within the rules. It makes you move faster, but it had never appeared in the rules before because nobody had really been trying to do that. It's it's just a reflection that the universe informs the novel. Mm -hmm. The fiction informs us how to make the rules and the universe better.
1: So it's sort of a um, symbiotic relationship maybe. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Speaking of rules, um, let's see, where do I have, I've got this written down, but uh, agents of the quarantine have a set of rules uh, which is, you know, I like that you talk about, it's some giant document, but it can, you know, it's sort of condensed and summarized. And is it five, I'm kind of five rules, right? Um,
2: oh, it's good five.
1: Okay. And um, could you, I can, I got the book here. Put it right next to the, um, they're in towards the beginning, but you probably have them memorized. Could you talk about the rules and how that, um, again, maybe helped, uh, form a, I've got it, you don't. (laughs) Let's see. Six rules. That's right.
2: Six rules. I got it. I got it here. (laughs) But see, the thing is, I don't have a memorized either, but thank you. (laughs) And and then, and, and I, I, I'm sorry, I'm cute in the book because I have the uh, Jonathan saying, uh, I'm going to do this. And then he just notes rule one you're mm-hmm. supposed to have memorized them too. You're supposed to have known what they say.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> As he's com- commenting to himself about how the rules work or what rules apply to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so,
1: so the, I'll just read them real quick. The, this is the executive summary. Rule one, you speak with the voice of the emperor, brook no resistance. Rule two, millions of lives depend on your actions. You may need to spend some of them in the process. Rule three, you act through your team. Build it quickly by whatever means available. Rule four, your team is your greatest asset. Use them, depend on them. Rule five, you hold the ability to punish and reward. Do both. Rule six, right action requires intelligence. If we can, because to me, this is sort of one of the the big themes and kind of the crux of the book in some ways, is rule two, millions of lives depend on your actions. You may need to spend some of them in the process. Let's see. Uh, So in a way, you know, you could think of him as one of like the most cold-hearted killers in history. He's killed billions of people. Um, But he also says, you know, there's a scene in the book where he's talking to, um, we can get into the details, but into a woman. And he says, you know, you ask how I could do that, how I could kill all those people. The better question is, how could I not? And then towards the end, he says um, something along the lines of the way he stayed sane was that it uh, the balance of what he did tilted toward life, and so mm-hmm. I to me this was one of the, the great kind of moral questions that's at the center of this, and I, I just I that was one of the most interesting things in the book to me. I wonder if you could talk about that.
2: Well, and you raised that point that he is he is. Um... Talking to a woman, a woman with whom he has a relationship, and she now has discovered what he's done.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: She is aware of who he is and and has kind of looked up the history and the fact that he has quarantined worlds and scrubbed worlds and just cold heartedly killed million millions or billions of people. And and it is a typical feminine aspect question: How can you kill all those people? And his balance is if I hadn't, that menace would have escaped that world, touched other many more worlds, all of whom whom would now be under that parasitic menace or whatever it was. Um, How could I not? You know, it's the classic trolley problem. Can you Mm -hmm. pull this lever and kill one person or two people or a hundred people? What are you gonna do? Um, And most people don't have that ability to make that decision. They would freeze. They would look for some uh, middle ground or some magic answer or a magic bullet or something. Um, you know, we have, we have that today um, in, the, um, in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. What steps do you take to, um, uh, to deal with the pandemic? And one answer is, let's just let it ride. Mm -hmm. And some people will die in the end will come out. Everybody will have herd immunity and we'll be okay. Mm -hmm. Another way is to say, we're going to do everything we can, but if some people die, that's what we'll put up with because we're going to work to save every possible life.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Those are many different choices. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I think that's some of what we're trying to address in this book is what choices would you make? Um, this guy has been given great power. You know, it's easy if you're told you're in charge and you can do it. Um, we're talking about rules, mm-hmm. the five rules, the sixth rule that you mentioned. You need intelligence about what you're doing, and uh, in terms of, in the sense of uh, information, intelligence, or mm-hmm. military intelligence, or recon, rec- reconnaissance. You have to understand everything that's going on around you. He makes that rule up himself as he realizes that he may have an awful lot of power, but he's also pretty much a pawn in somebody else's game. And unless he knows what's going on and is aware of it, he's just a pawn. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has this continuity between activations or awakenings, he has this continuity that he remembers what's going on before. He's living a long time. He starts, uh, the empire's dating system starts with year zero when the empire is founded. He starts about year 350 of the empire. And he, we follow him to about 650, 700. Yeah, so he's six, like 700 seven, 20, where, Let's
1: see, what's the last one? Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, 725 or something like that. Yeah. And so he's, he's
2: living a long time in, in 30 day spurts. Mm-hmm. And he wants to know things. And he sees more. For one thing, we don't resolve every question that he faces. Yeah. Uh, um, it's just a slice of the history of the empire. You yeah, know,
1: I, w- I wanted to talk about it because there's, there's certainly a novel, would be the way to categorize it. But there is a, because of the way you set it up with the 30 day increments and, um, we It also has the feeling of almost, at times, sort of interwoven short stories, although it's not really that, but it's sort of, it's an in-between ground, which I really liked, and like you say, you don't necessarily resolve everything, and you get slices of things, and, and then, but then some things may come back, and some things may not, and I just wondered, um, maybe you've already kind of answered this, but kind of how you came upon the idea, instead of just telling one sort of like beginning to end story arc to Sort of weave these pieces together, and you jump back and forth in time too, um, at least a little bit. So,
2: a little bit, a little yeah. bit. No, the the idea that we are covering somebody who is. I, I wanted to show the grandeur of this empire. I wanted mm-hmm. to show what's going on, and it. it's huge. It's you know, if if you're writing a story about the Roman Empire, you could either concentrate on the the center of power of Rome. Or you could have some sort of agent who is sent to the Roman frontier, the the German frontier and deal with uh, um, Herminius and the loss of the Eagles. You could send him to Spain, you could send him um, to uh, Palestine. And you could see all these different things, but you would have to do it in sort of increments rather than Mm -hmm. one specific novel, traditional novel. I'm doing the same thing here. I'm trying to show a lot of what's the grandeur of this empire. Um, It's an interesting structure it kind of unfolds before us, as opposed to, you know, how how is an interstellar empire governed? Who's in charge? How do they make money? How do you travel from place to place? All those things form the background for us, but I, I find it fun kind of puzzling out this, how this works.
1: Yeah, and um, what was I going to get to? Uh, Well, one thing um, I will say, this is maybe shifting um, maybe back towards the the earlier question about um, sacrifice, the needs of the many, you know, Spock, um, but is toward the end of the book, Bland sort of offhandedly, maybe cynically, Uh, I just want to get your thoughts on this uh, kind of remarks that everything come down, comes down to economics. And I wonder, you know, this is sort of like an English teacher question, I know, to ask the class, but I wonder if that's something he believes. Does that, does that drive him? Is that um, if he does believe it, does he think that's the way things should work? I don't know. That was an interesting, I mean, we've certainly heard that take from various politicians and philosophers, what have you. Um, I just wondered how that fit in in this universe and specifically with him and his, his thinking.
2: Well, first of all, let's, two, two interesting points on economics. One, economics is not about money. It's about make, making choices from limited options.
1: That's a good point, like, yeah.
2: You know, we have to make a choice. Do I buy the car or pay off the house? Uh, do I buy the big car and it, it takes a greater point of percentage of my money? You know, do I marry for love or do I marry for uh, social status? What is it? all those limited choices? And you have mm-hmm. to pick one. Um, and he faces limited choices. Do I kill all these people and save the empire or do I... Uh, Am I moved by my, my feeling for individual people or for lives? And I don't kill these people now, but a lot more people die later.
1: Mm-hmm. Limited
2: choices, uh, choices among limited options. That's economics. Yeah. Um, and that became apparent to me a long time ago in my career of writing and game designing that, that when we do games, it's, with that definition of economics, everything comes down to economics. Yeah. And so with the advent of the internet, I thought, I wonder where that phrase comes from. You know, what is that? And so I typed in and searched down, everything comes down, you know, everything depends on economics. And I found out who said that, and it was me. (laughs) 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 How can that be? But okay, so I, I claim that. That's... That's the foundation of the universe, not just this universe, but
1: every universe. Yeah, the um, universe, yeah. The universe, yeah. Um, um, yeah, I, you know, I was thinking of it more in the traditional, because in the context that he says it in the book, it is more monetary. But yeah, when you think of it more as, because in fact, he says, um, let me see, uh, at one point, he kind of describes how he operates, and he says, he assesses the situation this is paraphrasing, he determines a list of possible paths of action that will result in the outcome you want, saving the empire. And and then he picks one, but then he adds, like, basically saying, which one isn't important? Sort of the idea of, in a way, you know, you want to have a decision that will have the right result, but if there's multiple that can get that result, maybe it's not so important to pick the best, you just need to Deciding, making a decision, can be more important than the decision you make. Maybe some
2: people are paralyzed by making decisions. You mm-hmm. know, they wonder what's the best one. What do I do? They're they're moved by their own personal needs um, and their own moral structure and and uh, ethical um, boundaries and everything else. Um, you know, we're, we're wedded to the A B C D E grading system, mm-hmm. and this talks about a pass fail system. Just put in enough effort to get to pass the bar. And that's all you need Uh, and limited choices, but limited choices doesn't mean that the necessary. Okay, so uh, I'm a uh, military game designer as well as a science fiction game designer. And I spoke with, I went to a seminar once upon a time about military weapons. It was a long time ago. The keynote speaker was, let's see if I can remember the name, um, Eugene Stoner. He designed the AR 15, the M16 rifle. Um, and his keynote speak, he spoke about the M16 rifle. And at the, at the time, it was maybe a decade after a lot of congressional hearings and criticism of it in the uh, Vietnam War and uh, its problems and how it, it was a problematic rifle. And he said, this specific model of rifle has been in service as long as any other of the just favorite rifles of the military in the 20th century. And it's set to be our primary rifle through the 21st century and it's true here we are 2020 and it's still in service mm-hmm. um and he, his his quote was the best is the enemy of the good enough yeah and he said you know and he was willing to accept good enough for his particular design and the military kept saying we don't need yours we're going to have the best in another five years or ten years and they never get to the best mm-hmm. and his good enough has always been there and that's another part of the decision making process. The good enough the best is the enemy of choosing just good enough. And I was influenced by that in this concept of economics. You don't have to have the best choice as long as you're getting one that works. Yeah. in Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think of, you know, um, wow, I can't remember the book now. Anyways, it was about, you know, achieving things and it was saying very much the similar, you know, don't doesn't have to be perfect done is better than perfect and um you don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and then also you reminded me of that in you know from the book in that you know taking action over the long run is always better than not because if you take an action and you have a bad outcome you can you can fix it and now you know that's not the thing to do in the future if you sit there paralyzed (laughs) it doesn't you you know You have to, you have, doing things over the long haul will always result in a better.
2: Good things, yeah. It was stumblingly said, but fine. (laughs) um, Are you going to talk about Anna?
1: Yes, I did. Yes. So I loved her sections um, and you can set it up how that's a very, it's her point of view and uh, that we get, and it's sort of a different. Um, well it's different because it's from her point of view but it's also different in that Bland is around for much longer than 30 days and she's a former English teacher and maybe I like those sections just because I'm an English major I don't know but I certainly liked um, and actually you know you talked I want you to set it up for us but before that I want to talk about or maybe not before but um, talk about you earlier said how you read for plot first and then read for character. And there's a section in here sort of where she is, uh, has a book club on their ship. <laughs> and that's kind of the two points of view and, and Bland reads more for plot and she reads more for character and how really you need both. So um, yeah, set up how that works and what, who her character is and everything.
2: So so we have Bland on this chip and he put it in, a, you know, putting it in somebody's head And that guy then is bland for 30 days, and then when it's over, that guy comes back. In this case, that guy comes back and is traumatized by what he's done. Doesn't doesn't what he's done? Although he wasn't there, he was his mind was blank during that time, and so he goes on and he retires, leaves the navy, and settles down on a world. And it meets the love of his life, who is Anna, and they grow old together. And so this is 20 or 30 years later, and he is suffering from an unnamed disease, which is Alzheimer's. And so she's taking care of him. And they, you know, there's some elements, some economic elements there that they don't have jobs, and so they have less money, and the society doesn't treat them especially well, and so they end up in an old folks' home, waiting to die. Um, and that's the setup, except. Bland's character comes back in his head. There's a glitch. Maybe that's what caused the Alzheimer's. It doesn't matter, but he comes back. And so one night she, from her viewpoint, he wakes up and goes into the other room and starts looking at stuff on the computer, which is strange because he doesn't do very much right now. They're just waiting for him to die. And they have a conversation about something strange having, happening to him. He doesn't know what's happening either, of course. Bland's character, this has never happened to him, He not that he knows of. And so he's trying to address, what does he do? Is he crazy? Is what all is this? So they arrive at an accommodation um, because he expects that his personality will go away in 30 days. When it doesn't, then he's going to go do things. He's not gonna just sit there in an old folks home because as he still has all of his memories. So he has you know, the secret passwords that unlock budgets and, uh, um, uh, and authority and ability to make things happen because he's been, been given great powers. He has nothing to prove that what he is doing, that has nothing to prove That he is bland, Mm -hmm. but he has the knowledge of the secret passwords that will make government software do what he says, do what he wants. So he really does have great power. And he—I've had someone come to me and say he takes this English teacher, his wife, they go and commandeer a ship from some storage yard and set out to travel halfway across the galaxy to resolve some question that he had that he had never been able to resolve because he's only living 30 days at a time. This takes years. This is taking decades for them to do that. And this high school English teacher, retired high school English teacher is just thrown into it. And to give her something to do, she has to do. Okay, calculate the the astrogation, the, the courses we're gonna take. She learned, she's got 20 years to do this. And I've heard somebody say, I want that. <laughs> you know, I want somebody to just scoop me up, <laughs> put me in a spaceship, and let me learn how to run it over the course of twenty years. Mm-hmm. I want that. And yeah, it's a it's it's a it, it's a change, a contrast to what else we're seeing going on. Mm-hmm. But any Anna is a great character.
1: Yeah, and I really I really enjoyed those sections and, yeah, and the way sorry, go ahead.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, she's you know, my mother was a mother for 30 years 20 years 25 years and then and she was a widow and when her children were grown she went out and started a career Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because she had
2: she had to make money and you you would have just thought her life was over and she would just sit home but nope she went out and started a career and did something yeah that's the sort of thing that can happen and people want to happen you don't have to just stop so and it is a great inspiration to me I love I love the character. I love what it did, and I think we—it was a way of seeing deeper into the processes and the characters. As you say, I read for I read for plot, and uh, other people read for character. But I found that I was writing for character here. That there are some great characters emerged in this book.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think because of the longer period of Bland being. Alive, if you want to call it Uh, that, and um, maybe from her being from her point of view, you sort of get a deeper—not that the rest of the book is by any means shallow—but maybe a deeper and on the character front, you know, or you you kind of can a more sustained look at the character rather than maybe in you know building in increments, as maybe the rest of the book does.
2: You know, we're talking about depth. I mean, uh, someone who hasn't read this book is just totally lost. (laughs) <laughs> what's going on? I need to go home and buy this book and read it because yes. it, it's a fun book. It's it, it's a an easy read. It's not.
1: yeah.
2: Um, there's greater depth to it if you want greater depth. You could read it for plot and it would just race through and it'd be a lot of fun and there's a lot of interesting situations um, and it's fast-paced. I think there's all that. Mm-hmm. Um, read the dates at the beginning of each Section because yes. it tells you what time it is, you know, That's a, and you may yeah. not looking, you may not have noticed that we just jumped 30 years. You mm. know, there's that. Um, there are, are great sweeps of history that are going on that we barely notice because um, because we're moving so fast. Yeah. But, you know you can pick this book up and be done with it in a couple days
1: yeah i and, you know really and i think I, I would uh say anybody who knows the game would i'm sure love it but that it i'll confess i'm not a big gamer and uh i i'm not well i'm not a gamer at all right so, <laughs> so but so i loved kidding. it you know i you know and i and i and i will you know i do this for work and so i thought well i'm going to read it and i hopefully will enjoy it but you know do I have to know this game? Do you know, is it gonna really work? And absolutely, I was immersed in it and pulled along. And like you say, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's star, you know, spans 400 years and so many different elements of this society. And, uh, you know, so again, if you like the game and know the game, you'll like it. And if you just like science fiction, I think you will like it. You know,
2: there's some other things that I think about here, one of them is racism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, that, that I, I, when I created this game, I wanted to be eclectic and um, um, egalitarian, that we have all these races, uh, human races, different versions of humanity, and mm-hmm. then uh, different versions of, of alien races, and, and, and racism just kind of naturally raises its ugly mm-hmm. head <laughs> mm-hmm. that people don't like those guys. Yes. And those guys, and uh, we don't, and, and so we're, we, we don't trust them. And, and it's just interesting, again, that we should know better at this point in human history, and we don't. Mm-hmm. There's still this, um, and everybody does lip service for trying to be better about it, and says, yes, we're going to be, everybody is equal in the eyes of the law. Yeah, but the empire is 51% humans. So, Mm -hmm. empire emperors are always human. Um, The ruling structure is always human. Um, Nobody else can manage any kind of a a coalition to challenge that humanity ruling everything. And as long Mm -hmm. as humans treat the aliens okay, it's okay. But that isn't always the case.
1: Yeah yeah and i did i well, kind of i don't really know what more to say about it but I, just the compliment i liked the uh i liked all the different you give like the backgrounds of the alien characters and and you know the three especially i thought you know were so interesting they've got it's like six of them to reproduce or so anyway you know this is just very different societal structure. and what's neat about it is we sort of we get just a, enough of a glimpse of it i think to be enticing but yet still have sort of that sense of wonder of like, how would that exactly work? Yeah, no,
2: they do that, yes. No, yeah. I um, <clears throat> as I say, I write for plot rather than character, and yet there's some details here that I think are important. Um, I'm a white male guy, you know. Uh, I'm not very good. I, I deliberately said, made a rule that this chick can only go into men. Uh-huh. Because a woman, you know, it doesn't work.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because I wanted to avoid that whole story.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That would dominate the story. The idea of a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body. And that would become very personal. And that's not something that I'm ready yeah. to do. Um, and someone could well write that story, but that wasn't the story I wanted to tell.
1: No.
2: Nevertheless, um, as I say that this, this universe is filled with many races in the sense of divisions of humanity, but also alien species.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, there are
2: little hints in there about gender diversity. Mm-hmm. That we have people in the background who are clearly gay or trans um, and society seems to accept it. which is an interesting statement that at least it seems like they accept it. So
1: so one other aspect of this, and I think, well, I want to talk about sort of the the road to this coming out um, from Bain Books and uh, uh, the Dragon Award and all that in just a second. One last thing uh, that I have about the book and if there's anything else you would like to talk about feel free, but is I want to talk about the stadium. Uh, we have these sections in this stadium. Um, and maybe I, with that, if you feel like we're not going to give too much away, if you could kind of talk about that and what that is. Cause I, I, I thought those were really evocative again, sort of that sense of wonder kind of section.
2: So, um, you know, we, uh, Karen, earth centered, legends of the galaxy is that the galaxy the Milky Way is literally breast milk of the gods scattered across the sky mm-hmm. um, okay so that's Greek mythic legend you know and that we have a lot of reasons for what this scattering of light in the sky is and so we have created this concept of the Dacuseri, the the audience of the stars that on in another human species out in the stars and we haven't even gotten into why there are multiple human races in this in space but there are um, they believe that every one of those stars is a soul watching what's going on and that soul is either the dead or the yet unborn that's just a legend that's just a myth that's just some thing that somebody made up to explain what the lights in the sky are um, but clearly, Bland is aware of that. He has roots in galactic society, and so he knows that legend. Um, when his personality evaporates after 30 days, he is effectively dead. And uh, until he's reactivated, he remains dead. These scenes, these audience scenes, are uh, from the viewpoint of a dead person, him dead in watching what's going on out below from the sky. Um, that's the concept. Uh, is it real? I don't know, is it? Is it, is it, <laughs> is it just a glitch? Is it kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel for people near death experience? Uh, is it his brain processing things very quickly once he reactivates? um that's up in the air yet whether that's whether that's true or not but the idea is that there is this best stadium up in the sky watching what's going on and it is filled with all the people who have ever lived or ever will live uh, watching what's going on
0: and i think without i don't
1: we'll we won't give anything away but i you do a lot of interesting things I think with that, and I, and I, you know, those, these are kind of peppered throughout. I really, they um, are.
2: And you know, I, I had some people say, "Oh, I like that." I had some people say, "What's up with that?"
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> that, uh, why? Get that out of is, there. this is—he's is, is doing fantasy. What is that? That's just crazy. <laughs> and I, I have to say that I was kind of surprised myself because it just kind of flowed as I was writing this. But it's—it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting way to comment on what else is going on. Yeah, Um, so in in Traveler, I'm going to stop for a minute. In Traveler, one of the characteristics of this science fiction role-playing game is that you generate a character. You You roll dice, and you make a number of how strong you are and how smart you are, and a bunch of other stuff. That's just like Dungeons and Dragons. Then. In Dungeons & Dragons, you always start out as a level one character, and you go adventuring and you build up. In Traveller, you have this sequence where you would join the navy or the army or become a scout or do something and roll a couple of times to get some experience, and then you start playing a little older, with a little bit more more experience. But that process, in that process, Traveller is famous because your character might die in this pre-adventuring experience, and you have to create a new character because this guy's dead. It's a risk-reward situation, you know, that you take a risk on a die uh, on the roll, maybe you'll get better, but you could die. So maybe maybe I'm not going to take that risk. And I have this idea that I should have you save all your dead characters and they can go adventuring in this stadium, this space heaven stadium and explore That would be fun. Yeah. Answer all those questions of people who read those sequences.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) More about that. What is that? Here's your
1: answer. Yeah. Um,
2: That said something for some other time.
1: Sure. Um, I want to talk about the path to this coming out from Bain Books. Um, This is an expanded edition, and the original edition of the novel was nominated for Dragon Award. So, congratulations. and also, you know, we mentioned this is your first novel, but this is not your first rodeo. Maybe we should say you've been writing games for years and have made quite a name for yourself in that realm. So I wonder, just why write a novel, and then maybe walk us through the process of this now, uh, you know, coming out uh, in a trade paperback from Bain and also ebook, obviously.
2: Oh, uh, thank you. You know. When I started, I started writing a long time ago, in the early 70s. Gaming was a very new enterprise then. Um, and I was fortunate to be in at close to the beginning. Um, I enjoyed writing games. I, I had some good friends, some good partners. We had a good time writing games of all kinds of subjects. And the one that has emerged is this science fiction role-playing game. But I did others. I did war games and and science fiction games, board games, all kinds of things, playing with this science fiction that I enjoy. I wanted to write a novel. Back then I wanted to write a novel. But frankly, I was afraid of it. I mean, what do I do? What do I say? Um, what is my story? Um, and I had some that I started to write and I still will finish them someday. but. It took a long time. Um, Several years ago, I finished the latest edition of this science fiction role playing game, and I was totally immersed in it. And at that point, all of that working, how this game works, how spaceships work, how worlds work, how chips work in people's heads and give them skills, all those things were just fresh in my mind, And I sat down one day and just wrote a scene for a scene in the book of some situation. I had wanted to, I was aware I wanted to deal with the trolley problem of making decisions. I, I was aware, I was fascinated with this Christopher Rowley concept of scrubbing the world. And those all came together and I said, I'm just gonna work on this. And I worked on it for six months straight. I didn't have anything else to do. I was finished with the other, I was marketing things and shipping things and and doing all the things I got to do, but my spare time was about writing this. And I shared it with some of my close friends and they they told me it was good. You know, I took that with a grain of salt, but at least I was writing something that would work well within my Traveler game universe. Um, I did a Kickstarter. Which convinced a thousand of my closest friends to buy it. And they gave me good marks. You know, I, I have to say, I have a friend Greg Lee. Uh, he died several years ago, but he was he had done several novels, and he had written his traveler novel. And uh, he just was a brilliant writer. I'm sorry that he's gone. But he inspired me because he said, "You should do this, Mark. You should do this." And uh, I wondered how I could possibly write as well as he did, but I just persevered put the word, kept putting the words down on paper and trying to structure it. I think the the hardest part I had was knowing how it would end.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Once I realized how it ended, you read that, so it worked. um, Then I could work to that goal and that was, so I had this and uh, TC McCarthy, I was working with him on some project and he said, you know, Mark, you should talk to Tony Weisskopf and get her to publish this for you. And I said, huh, <laughs> you know, wow. But he made the introduction. He introduced me to Bain and gave me a glowing a, a um, recommendation. And so I was asked to send this book in. Let's see what you got. You know, it's always, at least I had a full manuscript. I had a complete product all ready to go rather than I'll tell you, I'm telling you I can write a good book. I had already written a good book or one that somebody could judge whether it was good or not. And I was fortunate that Tony read it and liked it, appreciated it, asked some questions. I could answer them right well. And she thought that this would do better than it had um, in a bane edition. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, you know, you're ending in quite right. You need to wrap up some stuff. Okay. You need to not use quite as many semicolons. (laughs) And I took all that to heart and and made the changes that she asked for. And here we are.
1: Well, yeah, it is out now, as I say, um, in trade paperback and also in ebook uh, format. Of course, everyone can go to bain.com and you can download it in any format you want or wherever you get your ebooks. Obviously, it's available too. Was there anything, Mark? I just want to say thank you. I, Like I said, I really enjoyed the book, I had a lot of fun reading it and a lot of fun talking today. But is there anything we didn't touch on that you kind of think maybe? Uh, we should or or should we leave it at that and let people go out and read it for themselves
2: you know we've talked in 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 circles here about this story as if they'd already read it and they need to read it yeah. uh, that that this is an exciting story that is accessible whether you play games or not yeah. in the grand tradition of uh, Somebody, I, I was talking to somebody and I said, you know, um, Amazon is going to do a um, foundation as a series mm-hmm. based on travel. And they said, it is, which <laughs> means that they don't have a classic science fiction education yeah. because clearly foundation was written in the 40s yeah. and travel <laughs> was written in the 70s. So, yeah. So, but and sometimes some people don't get that joke when I tell it to them, mm-hmm. but if you enjoy good space opera. It's not hard science, but it's not soft science. It's not really right. soft science. It's yes. science in its own way. It's good science fiction. And uh, yeah, read it. You know, yeah. the way I read my book reports in sixth grade. And if it's this interested you, you should get the book yourself and read it.
1: No, I, I agree. I I say, I really enjoyed it, and it's a it's a quick read and it's an exciting read. But as you say, there's also uh, you know depth to it, but uh, not boring. Yeah. So
2: appreciate your glowing recommendation.
1: Yeah, not boring. Says David. No, I I really did. Like I said, and I and I want to reiterate to people: if you like Traveler, you will like it. If you don't know what that is, I think you'll still find much much to enjoy um, between the covers there. So. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for doing this, Um, and uh, we will see you maybe next time. Maybe we'll. Are you working on anything new, or uh, you're just kind of sitting back and letting this one sink in? (laughs)
2: Well, no, I'm working on another one. All right. Very good.
1: Very good. Well, thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
1: And now, another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now, the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising Vengeance. Now, Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake.
0: SLNS Camperdown Hypatia System Do you think the Admiral will really keep to his timetable? Captain Adnauer asked very quietly as he and Commodore Koopman worked to update his best estimate of the number of Hypatians who'd been evacuated to the planetary surface so far. What do you think? Koopman replied after a moment. The sable-haired operations officer's eyes were a very dark brown under normal circumstances. Now they could have frozen oxygen as she considered him, and the intelligence officer reminded himself that Daphne Koopman was not a good person to get sideways of. She was smart, she was ambitious, she had lots of family connections. She'd made a habit of discovering the locations of as many buried bodies as possible, and rumor said she kept meticulous lists of those who'd helped her career, those who'd harmed her career, and those who'd simply really, really pissed her off. I don't know what to think, the captain said after considering his options. I just know that all of this... He gestured at the displays full of intelligence data his remotes were pulling him from the system data net, side by side with the results of Koopman's remote sensors. Says these people really are doing their dead-level best to get their people evacuated. I mean, so far, almost 20 of their system patrol people have been killed in accidents because they're cutting the margins so fine. I'm just wondering if he's going to take that into consideration. Worried about what might splash onto you if the opposition groups back home get hold of the casualty figures? Koopman didn't quite sneer, and Adnauer flushed. Maybe I am, some, he acknowledged with a defiant jut of his chin. Mostly, though, Mostly, Commodore, I don't want to be a Solarian officer who's remembered for his part in killing 15 or 20 million Solarian citizens. Koopman started to say something sharp, then stopped herself, and what might have been a certain grudging respect showed in her eyes. It took more than a little courage for a member of a Solarian flag officer staff to voice anything which could be taken as a criticism of the flag officer in question. And that was especially true when Admiral Koydu had to know that Orders or no orders, billions of people who weren't here and hadn't had to make the decision were going to bitterly criticize whatever he did. He had a reputation as a ruthless survivor of the Solarian League Navy's Byzantine bureaucracies and turf wars, and he knew all about burying inconvenient witnesses. That meant the consequences for any officer he suspected of disloyalty, or whose opinions might help fuel the criticism, were likely to be significant. It's a little late to be developing cold feet, Adenauer, she said after a moment. I didn't say I was developing cold feet. On the other hand, that might be one way to put it, Adenauer admitted. And it's not exactly like you or I were asked to volunteer when the orders were handed out. For that matter, I know the Hypatians voted to secede, which I guess means they aren't Salarian citizens anymore. It just, just bothers me, ma'am. Well, Koopman returned her attention to the data on the display between them. I guess, if I'm going to be honest, it bothers me, too. And I'm the one who drew up the ops plan. She shook her head. But exactly what he plans on doing when the time limit runs out? She shrugged.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Plus praise, thanks, and gratitude to Mark Miller, author of Agent of the Imperium, Out Now in trade paperback and ebook. And thanks once again to Tony Daniel for letting me sit in while he tried to make the Kessel Run in under 11 parsecs. He'll be back next week and I'm sure he'll let you know how it went. Until next time, I'm David Afshirarad, coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the
2: stars.